History this week, June 30th, 1858. I'm Sally Helm. It's a hot summer day. Or at least it's hot for London, 74 degrees. Londoners are leaving their cramped, sweaty houses, trying to find a shady spot to sit. There's no air conditioning, of course, in 1858. No refrigeration. And the heat this summer has been relentless. On the hottest day so far in mid-June, it was 94 degrees in the shade, so hot that people's leather boots were melting. And even worse than the heat is the smell. You couldn't escape it. It's coming from the river that winds through London, the River Thames. That river is a national symbol of greatness. And it is also, unfortunately, full of garbage and human waste, all rotting in the hot summer sun, creating an unbearable stink. The writer Charles Dickens said in a letter to a friend that he could barely walk across the London Bridge without vomiting. It was that bad. On this day in June, a group of men is sitting in a grand Gothic building on the banks of the stinking Thames. The Palace of Westminster, it houses the Parliament. There's scaffolding up around the tower that will ultimately house the famous clock, Big Ben. These men are meeting to discuss banking legislation, but they find that they can barely think. The smell of the Thames just keeps wafting into the room, filling it up, until... The thing became too much. It had become absolutely unbearable. These stately men rush out of the room with their handkerchiefs to their noses, still clutching their papers in their hands. Standing in the street outside, they realize something must be done. Today... The Great Stink of 1858. How did short-term thinking lead to a deadly problem in the River Thames? And how did an unlikely leader finally get London out of this very literal mess? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Rosemary. Hi, Rosemary. It's so nice to meet you. How are you? (laughs) I'm fine. Thank you very much. Hot. It's very hot here. (laughs) How topical. How perfect for our conversation. I know. I know. (laughs) Where am I reaching you? London, London. It's um, it's about 80 degrees and we've had nonstop heat all of May. We had no rain in London for the whole of May. Not a drop. It's another record-beating year like 1858. Professor Rosemary Ashton lives in present-day London, but she has also spent a lot of time dwelling in 1850s London because she's written many books about this period, 
including biographies and one book about the Great Stink. So we asked her, if you can put yourself back there now, 1858 London, if you can be there, what is it <laughs> yes. like? Well, it, it, it's quite hard to do that. You have to, of course, uh, take away any thoughts of motorized vehicles <laughs> on the streets. The omnibuses were horse-drawn. You had a horse clip-clip-clopping noise on cobbled streets. You had a lot of street cries, people selling things on the corner of streets, calling their wares. You also had organ grinders on corners of streets, usually with white mice or a monkey or something to attract the children. You've got ships on the water, people everywhere, factories, shops. And there was lighting and, you know, everything was in advance, as it were, of everywhere else. Uh, But also, what was also in advance was overcrowding and sanitation problems which came with that. The population of London had grown a huge amount as people moved there for jobs. In 1800, the population was one million. By 1850, it had doubled. And with more people comes more poop. From about the beginning of the century, the richer people now had water closets indoors. Water closets, a.k.a. toilets. So that is all well and good for the rich people. Meanwhile, poor people in London are throwing their waste into these mass cesspools. And what happened with the cesspools? Well, they were emptied every night by so-called night soil men. So somebody's job to come round with carts at night and empty the cesspools and then take the stuff in the carts <laughs> out of London to sell to farmers as fertilizer. Now, when you've got a smallish population, that's possible. But when you've got two million people, you know, it's not, it doesn't work. A London sanitation engineer named Edwin Chadwick starts looking at the problem. And he decides... Well, we've got to do something about a cesspool business. So he thought the better idea would be to have more people having water closets, which was, of course, nicer and apparently more hygienic. But the problem was that the pipes were not able to cope. And from about the 1840s onwards, with more and more people using these, the smaller pipes overflowed into the main pipes. And so sludge and sewage was being pumped into the Thames. The Thames. That famous river running through the center of London. It was really important for commerce. Imports and exports chugged across the Thames in cargo ships. Businesses grew up on its shores. And the Thames also had symbolic importance in England. Newspapers ran cartoon depictions of the old, bearded Father Thames, the spirit of the place. And Mother Thames sometimes, but Father Thames was the genius of the place. It was known poetically as the, the Great Thames or often the Silver Thames. Even Shakespeare wrote about the Silver Thames. And so, so it was kind of mythologically important for the history of Britain, really, I suppose. By the 1850s, sewage pipes are overflowing into the river. People are also dumping other waste there from slaughterhouses or breweries. And because the Thames is a tidal river, all this waste doesn't flow out to sea. It just stays there, bobbing up and down in the water. It is a tough time for the great silver Thames. You actually have satirical articles about the silver Thames and what's silver about it now. Nothing, you know. (laughs) Silver, it's brown, it's sludgy, it's disgusting. And the stink was the thing that people couldn't live with in, in the summer. As you can imagine, 
this hot, soupy mess of sewage and dead animal parts, it smelled. One newspaper wrote, Whoso once inhales the stink can never forget it and can count himself lucky if he lives to remember it. Because it wasn't just disgusting. People thought that the stink was literally deadly. London at this time faced frequent outbreaks of a terrible disease, cholera. To just talk a little bit more about poop for a second here, the main symptom of cholera is terrible diarrhea. People would die within hours from dehydration. In one outbreak, as many as 2,000 people were dying per week. There were huge numbers of deaths, and people thought that the cause of it was something called miasma, which basically is bad smells. You can understand how they came up with this theory and why it felt right. But in 1854, a doctor named John Snow is trying to scientifically pin down the source of cholera. And he doesn't believe this bad smell theory. A huge outbreak has hit London that year. And Jon Snow teams up with a local reverend to look at who is getting sick. He asks, where do they live? Do they have anything in common? And he discovered from the statistics that there was a particular area of London in Soho, round Broad Street, where there were huge numbers of deaths, many more than elsewhere. And he thought, well, why should that be? Why this particular street and its neighboring streets? And he discovered that poor people who lived there were drawing their drinking water and cooking water from the same pump on Broad Street. In 1854 London, there were pumps every few blocks where people got their water. And Snow thought, there must be something in the water of this one particular pump that is giving everyone cholera. So he thought, right, I'm going to close off this this pump and see what happens. He removes the pump handle. And so they had to go and get their water from somewhere else. And lo and behold, the number of deaths fell. And Snow is like, aha, the water is what's causing cholera. It must carry the disease. And he was completely right. This particular pump had been dug too close to a cesspool. But this problem went beyond Broad Street. The Thames was basically one big cesspool at this point. So for Snow, connecting the dots wasn't so hard. The Thames, the source of drinking water for much of London, must be causing the cholera outbreaks. Snow didn't know much about germs, but he still had the right idea about how to solve cholera. Even if you don't discover the bacillus, if you discover that whatever the germ is, that it's waterborne, you can do something about your water supply. But nobody listened to him at that time. Snow tries to spread the word. He writes letters to newspapers. A few people heard and a few people carried on agitating, but the general feeling was that it was miasma that caused it. The smell theory still has a lot of power. And the smell is getting worse and worse. Some Londoners are complaining about it to their members of parliament. But no act ever got passed because there were always people standing up, as they still do, I'm afraid, <laughs> in the legislature and saying, oh, but we can't afford it. Or my constituents don't like to have to pay any special tax. People were always finding some objection um, to doing anything, really. It's also important that the people who had the power and the money to do something about this 
tended to live farther from the smelly Thames, up on nice, breezy hillsides. Meanwhile, people who lived on the banks of the river tended to be poor. The population at large, no doubt, did grumble. But what were they to do? They had no voice. Plus, the government didn't really have a particular agency that was in charge of this. There wasn't a national health service. Anything that got done in the Victorian period got done because of individual entrepreneurship. And which water company was going to say, ah, we've been doing things wrong all these years. Let's spend a lot of money uh, on trying to change and do something different, you see. Who was going to do that? Well, in the end, nobody did. Until the summer of 1858. It was the hottest London summer on record. In a country known for chilly rain, it was a really unusual time. The temperature was consistently in the 70s and 80s, and there was no rain for a whole month. And during this heat wave, the smelly, smelly Thames gets even worse. Now, it's even affecting the rich people. There were pleasure steamers which had to stop in the summer of 1858. Nobody wanted to go on a pleasure steamer. Even Queen Victoria smelled the terrible smell. During July of 1858, she went down the Thames from um, Windsor Castle, where she was, I think, and she writes in her diary, how the smell was horrendous. And she had to rush back to Windsor again, and she, she expresses her sympathy with the poor people who have to live on the banks of the Thames and smell this in their daily lives. More and more Londoners start to get angry. It wasn't the first time London, particularly the River Thames, had begun to stink, but it had become absolutely unbearable. People begin to call it the Great Stink. By the middle of June, people are writing to the newspapers and saying, what is going to happen? Why is Parliament not doing anything? You know, this inky water, this noxious brown fluid, um, this festering cesspool. This is the moment for Jon Snow to come forward and say, time to fix this water problem once and for all. But he's nowhere to be found. So I'm reading all these newspapers and I'm thinking, why is Jon Snow not popping up with a letter to the editor or why are they not asking him? And the fact is that at the age of 45, he dropped down dead of a stroke on the hottest day of 1858, the 16th of June. Was that extraordinary? London has lost one of its great crusaders for clean water at the height of the Great Stink. It all feels hopeless. Nothing will change. Until June 30th, 1858, when the problem reaches right through the walls of Parliament. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. It is a very hot day at the end of June, and a group of stately men are meeting in the Parliament building. The 30th of June, it was a Wednesday, and you had House of Commons committee looking into legislation on banking, so nothing to do with the hot summer, sitting in a committee room which looked onto the Thames. One of these Parliament men is a guy named Benjamin Disraeli. And he is going to become our unlikely hero. Benjamin Disraeli was rather comically the young Chancellor of the Exchequer. I say comically because he knew nothing about finance and was extremely deep in debt personally. But what he was, was a man of extraordinary chutzpah and extraordinary energy and self-confidence and inflated rhetoric, actually, which could um, inflate a balloon. Disraeli had risen to a position of political power, even though... He, he was a bit peculiar in many ways. He dressed like a dandy, black ringlets, golden rings, silver gloves, and he'd written some rather extraordinary, uh, romantic, and in some cases, homoerotic novels, for goodness sake. Anyways, on the 30th of June, 1858, Disraeli is sitting in this room with some other parliamentarians, talking about banking, finance probably trying to talk about anything, really, besides how hot and stinky it was inside. But the stench is building and building. And things got so disgustingly smelly, they had to flee the room. The newspaper actually described this scene, writing, A sudden rush from the room took place, foremost among them being the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that was Benjamin Disraeli, The other members of the committee also precipitately quitted the pestilential apartment, the disordered state of their papers which they carried in their hands, showing how imperatively they had received notice to quit. And so they ran out of the room with their papers in their hands, is what that means. Their papers in their hands and their handkerchiefs to their noses. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) The problem could no longer be ignored. It was this particular moment where enough of these people of importance in the government realized that something absolutely had to be done. The Thames, this national symbol, has become a national shame. And the person who steps up to fix the problem is the dandy debtor novelist Benjamin Disraeli. You know, he was just brilliant. He was just what was needed as it happens because he got the bull by the horns and said, right, we're going to set up committees and we're going to make them meet and we're going to have them report really quickly. And he was as good as his word. On July 2nd, just a few days after these men flee the parliament building, a committee is set up to investigate what is going on with the Thames and how to fix it. And a man named Joseph Bazalgette steps forward and says he knows what to do. He, a bit like Jon Snow before him, 
was already saying in 1856, we need to drain the Thames. We can't have all this sewage going in and out into the Thames and staying there. We need to drain it. And nobody listened to him. But in 1858, Parliament is finally ready to listen. And they pick Bazalgette to build a new sewer system for the whole city. It's going to be an engineering feat. A thousand miles of drains feeding into 82 miles of underground sewers. It's going to cost a lot of money. Disraeli predicted it would cost 2.5 million pounds, or 306 million in U.S. dollars today. And he predicted it would take five years. It actually ended up costing more than double that and taking twice as long. And Israeli proposes to pay for it with an extra penny of income tax on every person in the whole country for 40 years. Now, of course, a lot of people in parliament balk at the price tag. But Disraeli knows just what to do. Disraeli was rather brilliant about this. He let them do their complaining. And then he said, he's quite breezy, really. He said, well, I now want to congratulate the inhabitants of the metropolis on the manner in which, generally speaking, the proposition of the government has been received. In other words, he tells Parliament that all of London is on his side. It's a bold statement. He's making a big assumption. And he's sort of playing this mind game with Parliament, saying that a body of Englishmen elected by a large and enlightened constituency like the inhabitants of this great city will do their duty. So I think really at Israeli's point, it's going to take a long time. It's going to cost a lot of money, but we've got to do it. Disraeli is breezy, but firm. And it works. The bill passes and Bazalgette gets to work. He builds massive tunnels to carry all the human waste through the city and out to sea. Bazalgette actually made the pipes even bigger than they needed to be at that time. He had the foresight to know that the population of London would continue to increase. The pipes that he builds run right beside the Thames, but they're covered up by these nice promenades. You would, as it were, kill two birds with one stone. You would do the important thing of getting the, the rubbish and the, the mess out of the Thames. But you would also have smart promenades with trees built and so on. And you would have views over the Thames and the Thames would be worth looking at. So, you know, you were getting a huge amount um, for your money. Uh, now, Disraeli didn't foresee all of that, but what he did foresee was you have to think big and you have to think ahead and you have to actually even legislate for people who are going to be alive after you are. Over 160 years later, Bazalgette's system is still in place and just now in the middle of a big upgrade. Rosemary Ashton says what impresses her most about Disraeli is his foresight. Disraeli knew that we shouldn't just be doing short-term thinking. We should be thinking long-term, and if it's going to be expensive, but if it's for the good of the country or the world or public health, we should do it. And so I think Disraeli, although he was by no means heroic as an individual, he was heroic in this respect, I think. Disraeli went on to become prime minister. And today, his legacy lives on. The Thames is one of the cleanest rivers in the world. And as for cholera, once the whole sewage system was built, 
there were no more outbreaks of cholera at all. So it is clear that um, it was carried by water. The Great Stink had pushed the government to take action. And their actions saved countless lives. And oddly enough, during the summer of 1858, the stink may have saved lives all on its own. The deaths in the summer of 1858 were not many more than in any other summer. And you might think, well, why not? And I can only think, I don't think people have thought about this very much, presumably because the water was so disgusting. Nobody wanted to drink it, did they? (laughs) Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on history today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.